Section 4 of The Kidnapping of President Lincoln and Other War Detective Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Kidnapping of President Lincoln and other war detective stories by joel chandler harris in the order of providence part two on one occasion nora touched young flournoy's coat sleeve remarking do you want to hear something about your father all the young people followed the two and listened to the story that has already been told the story of quote, why the confederacy failed end quote i still have the gold piece he sent me said nora proudly shaking the bracelet under flournoy's eyes the young man thought that the arm on which the bracelet glistened was the fairest and most beautiful to be found in the world i think you left out one of the portents remarked judge vardaman for instance inquired the captain fort donelson said the judge we were both there upon my word you are correct walton never before did an army measurably victorious surrender so tamely you remember the rage of forrest i do replied judge vardaman laughing a part of it fell on me i had been his courier during the day and he came roaring to his headquarters like a wounded lion he cried out to those who could hear him do you and you and you calling their names go and wake up every man in my command and you too sir he yelled at me and if you ain't quick about it i'll break me a hickory and frail the life out of you but there was no need to hurry the enemy was camping out of hearing expecting to be attacked forrest's whole command and many others who had no stomach for prison life marched out of the fort and not a federal was to be seen i heard of the proposed surrender about daylight said captain mccarthy and with half a dozen others made my way out i was not three-quarters of a mile away when i heard buckner's bugler sounding a truce yes my friend you are right fort donelson belongs high up in the list of portents but for that surrender grant would never have been heard of again his enemies at washington were preparing to make the final move that would have swept him into obscurity but when providence arranges a program it is not for mortals to disturb it that is so true remarked judge vardaman gravely that mere words fall short of describing it yes responded mccarthy it is true of the most trivial events but it is only when the issues are large that we can put our fingers on the connecting links in this vast chain he paused and looked forth across the fields of night in which the stars were blooming sighed and continued i remember the occasion when but for a most trifling accident we call such things accidents though we have no right to a life of inestimable value to the whole country might have been saved captain mccarthy arose from his chair walked to the farther end of the veranda and then came slowly back his head bent and his hands behind him he did not resume his seat but moved about in a small space in front of the older men in the company 
while the young people were grouped in the door of the wide hallway or sat upon the low railing that ran around the veranda you never met john omohundro remarked the captain to judge verdamon i never did but i heard general dabney maury giving forrest an account of him forrest's comment was that if he thought he could get omohundro he'd take a week off and go after him well john omohundro had gone on to the stage since the war and now calls himself texas jack said captain mccarthy whereat there was considerable excitement among the young folks for some of them had seen texas jack and buffalo bill when they performed in their lord melodrama of the wild west in macon some of the young ladies especially remembered texas jack as perhaps the handsomest and most dashing hero they had ever seen on the stage they remembered too that he had long black hair that fell in curls about his shoulders and the loveliest moustache possible to man and he was tall as tall as a grenadier captain mccarthy listened to this enumeration of omohundro drove attractions with a smile and then continued well he was a very handsome lad when i knew him but his hair was too short to curl and he had no moustache in fact the first time i saw him he was about as droll a specimen of the country cracker as i ever laid eyes on he wore brogans of undressed leather his copperous coloured breeches were short enough to show his woollen socks and as the day was warm he carried his jeans coat on his arm which enabled all who glanced at the droll figure to see that he had but one suspender and that made of twine his wool hat had seen service so long that it was as limber as a dish-rag he was driving a rugged-looking mule to a small cart which contained fresh vegetables a basket of eggs and a few chickens he was chewing a straw and his face wore a most woe-begone expression he walked with a slight limp and this circumstance simple as it was preserved the figure from exaggeration he knew at once that here was a droll specimen of the poor white common to all parts of our common country so familiar to maryland virginia and pennsylvania as it is to georgia and florida or to maine or vermont you saw him then suggested judge verdamon in his native surroundings before circumstances had combined to develop no replied captain mccarthy my first glimpse of him was in washington city within ten minutes walk of the white house oh i remember the very day cried nora when my duty carried me north on an errand that i knew would detain me there for many weary months i carried my family with me my wife and daughter and for the time being i made my headquarters in washington renting a very modest house there until such moment as the plans of my superiors could be developed well the captain went on laughing <laughs> they never were developed and i had to take matters into my own hands and organize a sort of secret service of my own which i never could have done but for omohundro he offered his wares before many doors but when he saw me he stopped his cart close to the pavement searched in it till he found three chickens tied together by the feet these he brought to the door remarking i reckon you're a new man in these parts i've been trading and trafficking run here for some time but i ain't never saw you before what wants your name be he looked at me and grinned like an imbecile my name might be almost anything but it happens to be mccarthy i replied 
you are right certain it ain't mcavitt nor mckinsey nor any other kind of mac he insisted because i seen a lady down the road a piece and she says says she jacky she says of you see cap'n larry mccarthy just up and lead three of your best chickens at his door as he said this the cracker nudged me with his thumb made a queer noise with his mouth and then fell into a fit of laughter what on earth do you mean i asked well i don't mean no harm not a bit in the world he replied i says to the lady says i is the captain a married man and she says i don't know where he is or no and i don't care you just give him the chickens she did that away she said them very words i got a gal myself he remarked by way of reassuring me and she's a thumper he laughed in the silliest manner now i had when first taking the cottage left my address at a country shanty some miles out of the city in accordance with instructions received at richmond but the gift of the chickens conveyed no information to me it seemed more like a trap laid for me but the cracker left the fowls and as he went toward his wagon he paused long enough to say i want you to save the biggest string cap i'll come back arter it some day now this was a cue the big string turned out to be about a yard and a half of thrums small threads loosely tied together and in this piece of thrums was wrapped a strip of tissue paper containing a message from one of general stewart's couriers an old friend of mine saying that no satisfactory instructions could be got from richmond and advising me to act as i thought best the bearer of the dispatch the writer said was john omohundro the brightest bravest and most trustworthy scout in the army the statement made me laugh i no more believed that the person who delivered me the message was john omohundro of whom i had heard a great deal than i believed that i myself was secretary stanton i never have believed it remarked nora emphatically i was nothing but a greenhorn in the business then the captain continued smiling at nora who tossed her head in affected anger and i thought that all such practices smelt of the cheap novel and melodrama i had not changed my own name and never did and i thought at that time that my contempt for all disguises and underhand methods would never permit me to employ them but when i had seen one or two young fellows gallant but foolhardy snatched out of my hands as you may say and sacrificed to mr stanton's implacable temper i soon lost my contempt for measures intended to ensure my safety that fellow stanton was a grand rascal remarked one of the captain's audience oh no 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 cried captain mccarthy deprecatingly you never were more mistaken in your life i despised him heartily for many a long day but he was honest and true he was simply implacable he spent and was spent in performing his duties he was restless and violent riding over everything and everybody that stood in his way he knew neither friends nor foes when it came to his duties and in like circumstances he would have hanged or imprisoned his dearest friend as promptly as he immured an anonymous spy well the day after i had received the message from my friend in virginia i became aware of the fact that two men were following me how long they had been engaged in this business before i discovered it was impossible to say at first i simply suspected it and then i made assurance doubly sure by walking aimlessly about but no matter where i went 
I found them not far away. They made no effort to intrude themselves upon me. They were not obnoxious, as you may say. They followed me at their ease and seemed to be in high good humor. Sometimes they would pause, as if trying to settle some disputed point, or one would seem to tell a good story at which both laughed heartily. Finally, having walked around and about for an hour, I determined to take a streetcar and go home. I had been walking in the direction of the capital, but the car was moving in the direction of the White House. The men who were following me waited patiently for the car, and then, as I expected they would, followed my example and seated themselves opposite me. One was a young man of very frail appearance. His face was somewhat emaciated, and his eyes were sunken. His hair was a dirty yellow. His companion presented a striking contrast. His face was full and rosy, his hair glossy black, and his eyes brilliant with health and strength. He was six feet high, but seemed to be shorter by reason of his perfect proportions. I watched them narrowly, but they never once looked directly at me. I was not angry, but I was irritated. I knew my position, and it was by no means pleasant to be followed about by strangers. They soon began to converse, and I felt that every word they said was directed at me. The yellow-haired man rolled his cat-like eyes as he talked, and sometimes held them closed for a dozen seconds together, giving a terrible emphasis to his words. You see, it's this way, he said, speaking in a guarded, confidential tone. We know that a message came from the rebels today. We caught one of the messengers, but we didn't catch the other. We know that it had to do with three chickens, and we know it was delivered. But how? I wouldn't give a dime for the message itself, but I'd give a thousand dollars to know who brought it, and I'm going to find out. I reckon we won't have much trouble about that, replied the other, lightly. They kept up this sort of conversation for several minutes, and I assure you I was surprised at my self-control. In fact, I had no need to exercise any. I felt as placid and as complacent as if I had been sitting at home listening to Nora playing jigs and reels on the mouth-harp. I seemed to be taken completely out of myself. You'll hardly believe it, but the situation seemed to have a humorous aspect, and I laughed as I left the car. I walked straight home, closed the door after me, and called Nora. Nora, darling, says I, two men will knock at the door presently. Show them into the parlor, and ask them to have seats and go into the kitchen and stay with mother. Should you hear any unusual noise, pay no attention to it. I made haste to move every chair from the parlor. We had few, leaving only a small sofa. This I placed opposite the door. Well, sure enough, there soon came a knock on the door. I went into my bedroom, secured my navy revolvers, a very fine pair, by the way, and as soon as Nora came back and described the men, I motioned for her to go to the kitchen. I sat in there, said Nora, laughing, with my fingers in my ears for fully half an hour. I knew, Captain McCarthy continued, that a desperate situation needed a desperate remedy. So I walked to the parlor door, covered the two men, and said, Gentlemen, your little game of sneak and tag is played out. The first one that raises his hand or moves from his position will be the first to die. To my surprise, they displayed no alarm. They showed no signs of apprehension. The reason was, to make a long story short, that the rosy youth was John Omohundro. 
while the other was frank tidwell the quaintest wag i ever saw you may be very sure i didn't take these gentlemen at their word until omahundro had rehearsed the scene with the chickens almost word for word this i had to depend on for the rosy youngster before me bore not the slightest resemblance to the cracker who brought me the chickens why should you play a practical joke on me i asked well replied tidwell you had to be broke in you know i didn't know whether you was a stump sucker or a thoroughbred we can't take no chances here if you'd a flickered on that car you'd never laid eyes on us any more whereupon after searching himself he produced an order on halifax bank for five hundred dollars in gold this as a guarantee of good faith was appreciated you were talking a while ago of a trivial accident or incident that turned out to have important relations to a larger event suggested judge vardaman as the speaker paused yes i was coming to that responded captain mccarthy i am simply trying to recall the impressions and details of a history disturbing event however these impressions are merely personal you have all heard of that unfortunate young man john wilkes booth well wherever there was a spark of sympathy for the south there this young man was to be found omahundro knew him well and it was natural that i should fall in with him he was a very attractive man in every way he had in him all the elements of genius but seemed powerless to focus them to say that this young man was mad would be to dispose of the problem he presents in a very unsatisfactory way he was as mad as hamlet was no more no less in all his views and beliefs and his designs and his hopes he was as much a creature of fiction as any you find in books he was so infected and unbalanced by his profession he was an actor that the world seemed to him to be a stage in which men and women were acting not living their parts there was nothing real to him but that which is most unreal the theatrical and the romantic he had a great variety of charming qualities and his mind would have been brilliant but for the characteristics which warped it i soon discovered that this young man of unbalanced judgment and unbridled tongue was a person to be avoided by those who had work to do omahundro had already made the same discovery for himself and he predicted that booth would commit some act that would drag the innocent to death for my part i went at once to canada then returned to new york and had very few opportunities after that of seeing this unfortunate young man but i was in washington on the eleventh of april eighteen sixty five three days after the surrender of lee and though i was in no enviable frame of mind i had the greatest confidence in the wisdom justice and humanity of president lincoln i felt as did all who knew him that he would do the right thing in the right way at the right time omahundro i remember had somewhat gloomier forebodings he had a real love for the president who knew the lad only as a country cracker and relished his drolleries which in the main consisted of narratives and anecdotes after mr lincoln's own heart in addition to those drolleries omahundro had a pretty good head for politics as all our southern young men have and he thought that mr lincoln would be carried away by the radical wing of his party which stanton assisted by morton and stevens had already nursed into life now i had some knowledge of men and it struck me that mr lincoln's excessive patience and forbearance 
were really the entrenchments behind which his purposes lay i thought i say that while he seemed to be deferring to the judgment of others he was engaged all the time in carrying out his own firm resolutions and unalterable plans as fast as events would justify them that is the simple truth exclaimed judge vardaman that is the way it struck me captain mccarthy went on and i really felt better after the surrender than for some time previously for one thing the suspense was ended the inevitable had come to pass still i was gloomy enough well i arrived in washington on tuesday the next friday was good friday as i was coming from morning devotions i met omahundro who had been waiting for me he was nervous and excited i'll tell you what he declared drawing me aside we are going to have trouble sure that fellow booth is getting ready to do something desperate i tell you he's crazy i've been talking to him and he's wild on the subject of ridding the country of tyrants and oppressors <laughs> pooh said i such talk comes natural to him as it happened we had not gone far before we met the unfortunate young man he paused long enough to pass the time of day and quite long enough for me to see that he was laboring under a great mental strain his eyes shone with an unnatural lustre and his gestures were uncertain i'll come to your room this afternoon my friend he said to omahundro and take a nap for the work that is before me i need the preparation of slumber ay he cried with a wild gesture and others will sleep envy not their dreams envy not their dreams my friend i'll meet you there said omahundro now for three long years it had been my business to foresee possible troubles and entanglements and to provide against them and so when i heard this young man's remark and noted his excitement i began to think of some possible difficulty into which we might be dragged therefore i said to omahundro do you go to your room lock the door and let it be understood that you'll not be back until late to-night why cap i want to collar that fellow and keep him there till he gets over the tantrums it won't be hard to straighten him out i believe he's got the jimmies well i replied you can only restrain him for a few hours his mania will renew itself and if he sleeps in your room this afternoon you will be identified with whatever he does especially if he commits some serious crime i reckon that's about so said omahundro nevertheless and in spite of all this captain mccarthy continued speaking gravely and with emphasis john omahundro did go back to his room and permitted this unfortunate young man to sleep there that afternoon when booth was sound asleep omahundro slipped out locked the door and carried the key away with him when he returned he found that the young man had escaped by the transom in the course of a few hours we were overwhelmed with the news of the president's assassination it was a terrible blow to the south but for some good purpose providence permitted the event to occur omahundro was deeply affected by it he felt that if he had remained in the room with the unfortunate young man and had restrained his movements until the next day his bloodthirstiness would have been dissipated but in my opinion no earthly power could have kept the assassin in that room he would have found some means of escape the awful event provided for in the mysterious order of providence would have come off on the moment just then joe bob griffin drew his bow across his fiddle in the dining-room 
and the young people went flocking in, laughing and chattering as young people will. End of section four. Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida.